you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. This is Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. The Chris Voss Show. Com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. Uh, we've had some really exciting authors and uh, people of brilliant minds that have been on the Chris Voss Show lately. Uh, thanks to a lot of uh, people like Princeton Press who have been sending their authors to us so that we can take and uh, interview them. Uh, but before that, uh, be sure to refer the show to your family, friends, and relatives. Get them to go to thecvpn.com or chrisvosspodcastnetwork.com. There's nine podcasts. You may hear these podcasts on any one of those uh, podcasts. The Book Author Podcast seems to be a popular one where people just love listening to great authors, so be sure to check that out as well. Uh, and if you want to see the recorded version of this in video on The Chris Voss Show, you can go to youtube.com for just Chris Voss. Make sure you subscribe to the show. Give those videos some likes so that uh, you know we keep making more. That's always a good idea. Today we have a very brilliant author I'm excited to have on because she's really smart and has written an incredible book on the financial business and a lot of different things we'll, we'll talk about, uh, taxation and, and how to create capital. Uh, her name is Katerina Pistor. She has been teaching at Columbia Law School since 2001. Her research and teaching focuses on the law of firms and finance in the U.S., Europe, and other developing countries. Her most recent book, The Code of Capital, How the Law Creates Wealth and Inequality, uh, was named one of the best books of the year by the Financial Times and Business Insider. She loves music and plays the harpsichord. Uh, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm really well. Thank you for having me. Awesome sauce. I'm excited to have you on because this is, uh, so this is some stuff that people need to know about what's going on um, from a lot of different aspects. So give us an overview of the, uh, uh, well, before we get into the book, let's, let's start with uh, what got you interested in writing this book and what it was about. You know, I think the real trigger was the 2008 financial crisis. And I did a large research project then with economists and other lawyers, political scientists, to try to understand the um, structure, the deep structure of the financial system. Because my sense was that neither economists nor sociologists or others who had thought and written about finance had really understood the system because nobody was able to predict the crisis. Right? And so I wanted to dissect what really happened. And so we started taking apart the financial system that led to the crisis. And what we found were the legal institutions that I talk about in the book. What we found were property rights and collateral and contracts and the common law trust, the corporate law, all legal institutions that have been with us for centuries, but that had been combined and recombined in certain ways to create what we now call the shadow banking system. Mm -hmm. And so my question then was, you know, where did this all come from? What did these institutions do in earlier periods? Um, and, and did they do something similar? Did they do something different? And that's why I started, you know, basically going back into history, doing a kind of reverse engineering, and then trying to understand um, not only the financial system, but capitalism more broadly. Awesome sauce. So give us some dot com so people can uh, look you up, find you on the web and where they can get a hold of the book. 
Yeah, you can find me, of course, at Columbia Law School. Um, you can get the book at Amazon. You can, can get it directly from Princeton. You can get it on um, um, uh, internet sites where you can order it to, through your bookstore. Um, should be easy to, 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 to obtain. The Code of Capital, How the Law Creates Wealth and Inequality. So uh, let's talk about the book. Um, what, what, uh, what's, what's the overall thrust of the book and what it's deeply about? Yeah, basically, in a nutshell, I would say, you know, give me any object, any promise to future payment, any idea, right? All these things are nice to have, but they're really not worth much. But I can flip them into a wealth generating asset. That's how I define capital, by giving it the right legal coding, the right Mm -hmm. legal DNA, if you wish. Right? So I have to flip a piece of land, which is a piece of dirt into real estate, by giving it property rights, right? I have to uh, flip a promise to pay into an enforceable legal commitment to make it a financial asset. I have to flip an idea into a patent um, in order to make it uh, produce wealth. And so that's, that's the core idea. Give me, give me uh, these assets, these objects, these ideas. I flip them into, into wealth-generating assets through law. That's the important thing. And law, of course, is a social good. It's something that is related to state power. But the point is that private parties can avail themselves of that state power to code capital in law, to code these objects and make them uh, become wealth-generating assets. So would you say it's... It's both bad and good because, um, it, I mean, obviously these 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 lawyers, tax people, they're they're paid to uh, you know find loopholes or or edges in the system of a tax system, no matter what the rule is. Um, is 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 this a bad thing or a good thing or is it is it a mix of both? Well, I think it's probably a mix of both. All things are somewhere a mix of both, right? So the, the point, of course, is it's wonderful to have property rights and it's wonderful to have infor- you know, enforceable contracts. Economists have told us for, for decades, if not centuries, that you need this to have a viable economy. Um, what I'm suggesting in my book, however, is that the extent to which we have allowed private parties to pick and choose the interests and assets that shall be coded as law and then get the law- lawyers to do this in private law and only once in a while have a court uh, look over it, has shifted the power to determine who gets wealth, um, who has a better access to the system, so much in favor of well-resourced private parties that this explains the um, huge inequalities in wealth that we have today. And I think we just have pushed the system too far. Oh, wow. So, uh, I mean, we've seen a lot of inequities in our world. I mean, over the past 30, 40 years, we've seen the dissolution or dissolution of the uh, middle class. Uh, We've seen poor people get poorer uh, and rich people just get richer. I mean, there's a huge uh, wealth gap in this country and the 1% or whatever seems to get richer, especially if you listen to Bernie Sanders, he'll go on about the 1%. But um, a lot of the people that don't have access to this, you know, they don't have money, they don't have the ability to hire attorneys and everything else. They're kind of left behind for these systems, but, but these folks can go ahead and create it. I mean, like recently we just saw, well, everyone's losing money and losing their jobs. Uh, I think they said the top 1% picked up like $500 billion in income still. So there's, they're still doing fine with everything they're doing. 
Yeah, I think, you know, for, for, for the crisis in particular, for the 2008 crisis and the 2020 COVID crisis, we also have to add the role of the central bank um, in, mm. in protecting the assets and in protecting financial markets from collapsing. So one thing that might happen if you code your interest so well in law, you could actually overdo it and could trigger the self-destruction of the system. Because if mm -hmm. you make really, really binding commitments... And everybody does it, and on that basis, basically speculates for more to be gotten in the future. Mm -hmm. If then things change, like you get a COVID crisis, the whole thing can just you know self-destroy because everybody's enforcing their rights at the same time, and that will mm -hmm. destroy the system. In that moment, the central banks are critical because they can come in and put a floor under what you lose. And I think that reinforces the wealth cre creation or the wealth distribution that we all already get through the system I described. But if you then add on the help that central banks give to asset holders, that really exacerbates the problems that we have. Yeah, early on, we and, and a lot of people don't follow this. I follow it because I, you know, I've always studied the Fed. We had a mortgage company for almost twenty years, so the Fed was kind of important to me in in its rate setting and its adjustments. Um, you know, they could wipe out seventy five thousand dollars worth of my money and and you know just making a decision of a quarter point adjustment with Alan Greenspan. Um, but uh, um, it's it, early on. They were floating, you know, almost like was like trillions a day um, to keep the market stable and everything else. And you're seeing this weird effect right now where you're still seeing the stock market go up. Um, I don't know if there's the coming crash because there was kind of that 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 denial that you saw in 2008 uh, where the market was still like, ah, it's not going to be as bad as it was. And then, you know, finally there was the cliff. Um, was that kind of what happened in 2008 where, where, you know, it was almost the too big to fail with those commitments you mentioned? You know, I think what was interesting in the 2008 crisis is that um, Lehman was allowed to fail, right? Um, I think the Fed and the Treasury had made the decision at the time that Lehman was not too big to fail. It turned out it was too interconnected to fail, really. Mm. Um, and so um, when they then were standing at the abyss, right, they bailed out AIG the next day. And all of a sudden, all yeah. the arguments that you can't, you know, that you don't have the legal authority to bail out Lehman with AIG, you know, you just blinked and you did it. Um, this is also an important point. You know, I, I really argue in my book, it's coded in law. The private commitments are coded in law. But in times of crisis, the law becomes elastic and mm -hmm. the elasticity is determined by those on the top. And the central banks in the US, in Europe and elsewhere are typically trying to protect the system from self-destruction. And so they will protect those that are really central to the system if they can. They made a wrong assessment with Lehman, but then they rescued everybody else. And once again, everybody, you know, all those folks on the periphery, the small folks, they're left to fend for themselves. <laughs> that then sort of just trying to protect a system, but a system that had created itself to become basically too big to fail, too interconnected to fail, and almost placed a put option on the central bank, you know, dare letting us go under um, because the entire system will crash. And under those circumstances, almost any policymaker will, you know, choose to protect. Would you say that also part of that was protecting the top 1% richest people in this country because they're the most largest vested in those assets? 
you know, you can't really look into the heads of the policymakers. I, you know, I would give them, you know, the benefit of the doubt and say they were thinking about the system, not necessarily the individuals mm. behind that. Having said that, however, I'm kind of disturbed by the fact that after the crisis, the first attempts to try to you know, create greater transparency in the system allow us to look through who are really the ultimate beneficial owners at the other end of these assets. A couple of attempts were made um, to, to um, create greater transparencies, but this was pushed aside as soon as the system was back on its feet. So mm. um, nobody really pushed hard enough, neither the Treasury or Central Bank, for really um, bringing that to the fore. And that tells me also that they do, of course, think to some extent of the asset holders behind the intermediaries that they're and the assets that they're protecting. Well, certainly the people who can afford to, um, you know, have the president's ear to be able to put a phone call in, uh, who are able to hire the lobbyists, who are the foundations and the trusts. They can hire the lobbyists to go lobby either the Congress to give them favorable tax law or the other, um, you know, are probably on the president's speed dial of any president. Uh, the uh, Let me ask you this, because this has always been a, a curious thing in my mind, because Goldman Sachs was the large benefiter of the failure of Lehman Brothers. Was that a hit job? Or was that just uh you know it's 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 difficult to say I think a couple of players in the markets already in two thousand seven felt that um, Goldman was trying to take a hard line mm-hmm. against them and 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 was playing sort of the hit guy and of course rescuing its own um, back um, by by doing so and was quite aggressive I think Goldman was the first bank that uh, put a collateral call on AIG financial product which started. Mm-hmm basically bringing AIG down. Um, and, uh, uh, but they also then stepped back from the brink because they realized if they did it too fast and too aggressive, they might die along with everybody else. So I think it's hard, it's hard to disentangle this and really say what they are. And of course, are multiple players. But I think most people would agree that it was one of the more aggressive players in the run-up to the, to the crisis in 2008. It'd be interesting to follow the line of those asset acquisitions because I think, I, if I recall rightly, uh, Goldman Sachs picked up the, the fallen assets of Lehman Brothers, which seemed very convenient at the time. But I mean, if you really think about it, and, and I'm just speculating here, if Goldman Sachs backed off the call, uh, the capital call for or the asset call for their for their thing, um, and instead had the uh, had the Fed Reserve bail them out and give them money, that's money that goes back to Goldman Sachs, right? Yes, I mean, it's, you know, it's all it's all recycled. <laughs> it's all recycled that's that. like that's like me, somebody owing a money, and they're like, "We're gonna file bankruptcy, Chris," and I'm like, "Um, I'm gonna get my friends over at the Fed and our little organization to give you the money so that you don't file bankruptcy on me." He's kind of interesting. Um, the, uh, so you talk in the book about uh, some of the different ways these guys use codes to create certain assets, endowing them with the capacity to protect and produce private wealth. Um, you mentioned offshore banking and stuff. Uh, we saw the Panama Papers, which are kind of interesting because, well, they're very interesting, actually, um, because they, they showed how different even uh, – leaders in other countries were using uh, different offshore banking and all sorts of tricks and trades to to be able to skew and hide their finances, sometimes what they'd stolen from their countries. Yeah. You know, the Panama Papers are really interesting because they reveal the extent to which, in fact, law firms, right, were mm-hmm. – 
there on the ground doing the coding that makes it possible to evade taxes. So tax evasion is, of course, a strategy that itself involves a lot of the legal coding strategies that I describe in the book. So you need a legal entity, you need a corporation that will be recognized as a legal entity in the U.S. and in Germany and in France and elsewhere in the world so that you can play the game of saying, actually, this money was made not in the U.S., but it was made in the Cayman. So we can basically um, shift some of our transactions through the accounts there. So you need a legal entity for that. And that's one of the core modules of my code of capital is a corporation or a trust, right? A trust is also creating a veil around a set of assets to protect them from too many claimants. And so, um, you know, the law firms in, in, in Panama are setting up these vehicles for clients and they paid nice fees to the lawyers and the lawyers <laughs> and created the vehicles that allowed them to pretend that the um, that their profits were um, made elsewhere and were not taxable in many other jurisdictions. So this is this place together. I, I'm not a tax expert myself. I allude to taxes. But one thing I also said in the book, and I just want to reiterate this, we very often create um, a blacklist of countries, of tax havens. Um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, we also have other tools in the toolbox that we could use. We could, for example, think about denying the status of a legal entity to the entities that are incorporated in Panama, whether or not it's a blacklisted country, right? But you could say we just ignore these types of legal tricks and we ignore the legal deals that you're trying to create. And uh, most countries and most courts also still hesitate to do that. But I think that's also something we should be thinking about. One of the things that was interesting to me, I don't know if you talk about in the book, but like the tax havens in, I believe it's Ireland, where companies like Apple, you know, just about any major company set up a P.O. box there. And that's really all that's there. And and they were able to park their their profits and, and revenues and stuff from other countries over there without bringing them to the U.S. so they could have a tax haven. Do you talk about that in the book? I do actually mention the case that the European Commission had brought against Apple, which actually was just turned down by the lower court in, in the European Union. So, um, but, but what I do discuss in the book is how Apple did this, right? Creating legal entities in Ireland and then having a kind of a sweetheart deal with Ireland so that you benefit from um, tax, uh, almost tax haven status. I think Apple pay, paid about 5% taxes on what it sold throughout the European Union. So they booked everything through Ireland where they had the special tax deal. And the commissioner, the competition authority in the EU said, this is indirect state aid. So Ireland mm -hmm. is basically giving you a subsidy. Now that was now turned down by the lower court. So the commission has to think again, but I, I found the argument actually quite compelling, but the, the court apparently did not. Um, but yes, these kind of arrangements are exactly what, um, what uh, we have to think about and that you know we can see this in the Panama Papers we can see this in bright daylight in what Amazon or Apple or Starbucks and other major corporations do in Europe and elsewhere in the world and this is why it's important for people to get your book and read your book because they need to understand what's going on I've been lucky enough to be in, involved or, or see and understand I've read a lot about financial instruments how the Fed works I mean I encourage I've encouraged everybody I know I'm just I, I was talking to my mom last night and I'm like you should read some Fed books um, how the Federal Reserve uh, uh, does what it does uh, there's a lot of great books too is how it can destroy economies throughout the world and everything else just by its movements um, and uh, it's important for people to realize these things are doing because what we've been seeing and what we saw with Apple and other companies was they were skirting taxes 
They don't pay any taxes here with all the tax charity they're given, basically. I, I've owned like 26 corporations. I know how this game works. We, we get an immense amount of charity. You can, you can bury so much stuff with all the different tax write-offs and everything you have um, and, and create losses and everything else. Um, it's insane, but the average person can't do that. And we've been seeing for a long time this, this uh, separation between the wealth and poor where where um, the the rich people can take care of advantage take advantage of these havens, and then the poor people are left more and more to carry the tax burden, so they pay more in taxes. Warren Buffett uh, brought this up, where he was like, you know, I, I pay less taxes than my secretary. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think relatively speaking, that's absolutely true. And I think sometimes the, the, the wealthy, of course, say, well, in, in nominal numbers, we pay more, and of course, but relatively speaking to what they make, they do not. Um, and I think Gabriel Zuckman and has shown this very nicely in, in their work. But let me just make one more point on, on Apple. They did get some cash right now in the COVID crisis as well from the government, right? And it was justified <laughs> by saying, well, Apple has to pay its employees as well. Now, we know that Apple has a lot of cash, but it might not keep this in the U.S. It might keep this offshore. Right. And that's, yeah. again, sort of, you know, the, the fact that sort of governments bail out companies that avail themselves of these kinds of legal tricks, um, you know, is, is deeply problematic. Um, years ago, <clears throat> we had our first few businesses. We got hit up by a trust attorney and he, we sat and had a meeting with him and he sat down and explained to us how to uh, set up trusts. We owned a courier company and because we had so many vehicles each vehicle was a liability if it hit somebody. And so he, he was uh, working to try and set us up where we could put each vehicle in a trust that would be separate from the corporation. So if that vehicle did the thing, then he explained to us, you know, how hard it is to pierce a trust. He explained to us how foundations work and everything else and how you can even funnel money to politicians, not to them specifically, but you can, you can push angles. Like you can, you know, provide cell phones or houses that they can borrow rent You know, different, different skeevy ways that you can use to skirt different things. And we're <laughs> just floored. We couldn't afford the money he wanted to set up because we weren't rich enough at the time. Uh, we were still in the new phases of our business, but it blew my mind. Like a lot of people, when they, they, they hear that some rich guy, you know, or some basketball star or whatever, is like he put his money in a charitable foundation. They're like, oh, he gave his money away. That's so wonderful. He did that. And they don't even understand what it truly means and is. Yeah. No, I think, you know, the, the trust, I would say, is really one of the most ingenious legal institutions for code, coding capital. Because you can basically alter property rights without calling it a, a real transfer or without calling it a property right fully. Um, uh, so you can create these wheels that protect different assets and, and hide them both from sight and from access by different groups of creditors. It's, you know, it, uh, that was one of the institutions where I went back in history and looked at its predecessor, the use. You can trace this to the 12th century, right? And then you can mm -hmm. see how it evolved over time and how in the 19th century it was no longer used just for land, but other assets could be put into the trust. And, and how, of course, today it, it is the securitization vehicle. When we talk about SPVs, the special purpose vehicles, the financial jargon, I always say, you know, you have to look through that. You have to understand the legal structures because an SPV just sounds like a little sexy. But what it is, it's a good old trust. And you can trace this thing back to the 16th century. And you have to understand, you know, what it does. It, it, it does exactly what you suggest. You can just sort of shift assets to some something else 
that is a brainless creature. Um, and you appoint a trustee that takes care of it. You write a trust deed and tell the trustee what to do. And you do this for some beneficiary um, that gets, gets then the, the, the benefits on the other end. Yeah. And, and then, of course, you save a ton of money in taxes. Do you see these instruments? I, I'm, I'm, this is, I, I mean, I probably already answered this question, but do you see these instruments used in the establishment of PACs so that they can, you know, they can help um, encourage, let's use the word encourage politicians to change tax laws to their advantage or overlook different loopholes? Yeah, no, you know, I, I haven't really looked into details there. I wouldn't be surprised to see that. <laughs> I mean, that it is the vehicle through which you would do that. Um, I see a lot of foundations get involved with PACs. Yeah, exactly. The same thing. <laughs> it's, just a, it's a slightly different legal, var- you know, variation on the theme. Yeah. And, and, and then, you know, I mean, this is, that's just how it happens. I mean, this, more and more, I mean, a lot of times we've been, uh, there's been chatter that we've become more of an oligarchy where the rich people are in this country. And I think that's been true for a long time. The rich corporations and corporations are people, no matter what Romney says, uh, you know, I mean, under tax law, it is a person, but, um, you know, there's there's people that are powerful and rich that run these corporations and own them, and uh, they influence what they want. Um, to me, the the biggest heartbreak is seeing, uh, you know, uh, the if you there's different graphs that are out there where it shows like from the 50s the uh, like a 90 percent sort of tax rate for rich people, mm-hmm. the ultra rich, and then it just keeps going down to where now it's actually lower than what the average person does. Mm-hmm. And so then you just have the average person carrying the economy because, uh, and and tax income because uh, rich people aren't paying the taxes and skirting it not only through themselves and their instruments that you talk about in the book, um, but also through their corporations. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, I think um, we have we have really seen sort of the decline of of the tax um, for the wealthy, and the argument has been certainly since Reagan and Thatcher that you want to um, you know help free up capital, and that ultimately everybody will benefit. But we now have the data in that this is just not true. We wouldn't have that income in distribution if this is what had happened. Um, and I think what we see instead is we're not we're not really seeing the free forces of the markets and the liberty, but we do see a system where people have figured out how to use the law, which I think is a social good, to protect their assets and to create advantages that are greater than others. And, and it's really, it's, it's deeply fused with issues of power and law and not just free markets. That's an illusion. So let me ask you this, in, in your uh, research on the book, did you find that um, if everyone were to have equal access to this, like somehow, if, I don't know, H&R Block decided to somehow give the same sort of information to the average person to cheat their taxes. Would governments be forced to change? Because pretty much no one would be paying taxes at that point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could, um, yeah, you could say either I give everybody the uh, possibility to evade uh, tax, mm-hmm. but also put it more positively, you want to give everybody the possibility to create um, wealth-producing assets, which is, a, I think, a more positive spin. And I think that's something I would support. I think giving everybody the ability to evade taxes doesn't make so much um, uh, sense to me. I would rather sort of say, let's try to uh, prevent tax evasion on a grand scale and and also be a little bit more lenient, lenient on the small guys, right? I find it also irritant, irritating how much the IRS very often goes um, um, after the smaller guys rather than the bigger guys. Of course, more expensive to go after the biggest. That's inequitable and, and, and in a fundamental way. But 
But I do think that we can um, think harder about how we can use these institutions that are, you know, that they're not bad institutions, property rights or trusts. We can use them for very good purposes as well and how we can make sure that people have access to them and can protect themselves against future downturns, right? And that's what you know, corporate veal is all about. I have limited liability. So if something really bad happens, my personal wealth is not affected. That's a nice thing to have. But many mom and pop shops in this country and elsewhere don't do this. They're simple partnerships and they lose their shirts when things go wrong as they do now in this crisis. So there are many more legal tools that we could use also to protect the more vulnerable, which we're not doing. And I think that's, that's something I would really advocate strongly. Cause we're really in a, we're really in a crazy position, you know, um, you've got the fed, you know, basically, I don't know, you call it printing money, uh, floating the markets with trillions of dollars. Uh, I mean, they are buying back the securities, the T-bills and stuff technically, or, or giving them, as you said, a floor, uh, but uh, on top of that, you know, we're giving trillions of dollars out in 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 uh, support and support stuff. Uh, most cities, uh, like New York, I believe Governor Cuomo has talked about this a lot. Where uh, the problem is they don't have a lot of revenue coming in because there's no sales taxes uh, on a mass scale coming in. You know, people aren't eating at restaurants and everything else. He, so, but they're paying out a lot of money for unemployment. Some states are seeing, you know, huge unemployment costs that they, you know, are beyond what they factored for. Um, and then there's no revenue coming in. And I'm sure the U.S. government is going to be experiencing this fairly soon, where there's there's a lot less revenue coming in. I mean, they they already they already put off the uh, time that everyone had to file. And then I'm sure maybe a lot of people will go for extensions and, and God knows what's going to happen with people being able to pay. Uh, but then you also have these instruments where, you know, we're, we're piling more debt on the national debt to do trillion dollar bailouts. Uh, they're talking about another one and I'm not saying they're good or bad. In fact, I think they're, they're kind of good because you can print your way out of, uh, out of the sort of thing, but there is a penalty to this debt that you have that you're, you're carrying, you're kind of throwing, you know, like I tell my nephew who's 20 years old, I'm like, have fun with your future. Uh, <laughs> but, well- uh, yeah, you know, I think there's an important difference between the state of New York or the city of New York and the Fed, right? I mean, at least the Fed can issue its own money. And that's, yeah. that's actually a powerful tool. No, it is, right? You're right, you're right. The states can't do this. And, and that also gives you, you know, an, an, an option that, that, that others don't have. And so, so I think the states in this country um, and, and countries who don't have, that have, don't have their own currencies, like the member of the Eurozone and others, they're really in a bind, right? Because yeah. they don't have that option and they can only fund themselves through debt, and of course, that will be more difficult um, to obtain as as, as more um, as you indebt in yourself more, and you have decreasing um, income um, revenues, such as taxes, etc. So that's a real problem. The only help can come from the federal government, right? So if the federal mm-hmm. government does not issue the money to fund its states and its, its cities in this country, then we're really in, in, in deep trouble. Yeah, a state can't a state can't carry a state can't file bankruptcy and. They have to balance their budget, which is kind of interesting because the federal government can do whatever it that wants. Was, uh, that was part of the deal. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so, uh, do you see? Do you see us coming out of this? Um, you see it taking longer to come out of this trench than you know. It took us pretty much ten years to come out of the trench from two thousand eight. What do you see the future of what what we're going through right now and how it comes out the other side? That's so much harder to say. I mean, I think, you know, some people argued we've really never left the 2000 crisis behind entirely. Um, you know, when you look at sort of the level of debt that companies racked, racked up, 
um, in the meantime. So, you know, households, I think, stabilized. We got the banks sort of under control. But there are other, you know, fragments or segments in the economy where, you know, people saw trouble before. And some people argued also that a recession was coming already in February before we had this pandemic. Now, the pandemic puts us, I think, in a different um, place altogether because it's so difficult to... um, to say when we will come out of that. So there's, on my mind, certainly not going to be a V-shape, maybe a W-shaped um, recovery. It's not, it's not going to just turn around. I think we have to fundamentally cha- change how we do things and how we also think about what we need to fund in the future. If you just think about you know, how quickly we understood what is really essential work, it's not what's doing being done on Wall Street. They all could work from home. But what's really essential is the people who take care of sick people and, and cleaners and essential workforce, et cetera. And, and, and I think there's a normative debate we have to have how to protect them in the future. But how do we get out of this? I think right now we have to rely heavily on the um, ability and willingness, political willingness of the, of the Fed, of the central government that has the money issuing authority to use that and to channel the money into the right hands. You know, what I, I found troubling as well is how difficult it was to reach households and small farms, right? Yeah. We know exactly how to bail out the financial system. We know exactly how to reach the, the big corporations immediately in no time. We cannot reach those that are most vulnerable in a crisis like that. That too, I think, has to be rethought because it's unlikely to have been the last crisis, right? Um, if anything that we know in an uncertain world is that the uncertainty will increase in the future um, rather than decrease. So we better think about how to become more resilient on that front. Yeah, it was astounding to me. Like everyone was running around going, I get a $1,200 check. And I'm like, have you read the law? There's millionaires that are going to get millions from the U.S. government uh, that don't need the money. I mean, the Catholic Church got, I think, $2 billion. Mm-hmm. These guys these guys got price, plenty of priceless stuff in the basement at the Vatican. They could uh, hawk at a pawn <laughs> shop if they really, you know, got in a bind. Uh, you know, not to mention one of the frustrations was is, is once um, they finally released this data, there was a ton of tax-free churches that got money. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm all for supporting organizations if they're paying employees and stuff like that. But some of these organizations, number one, had a lot of money. And number two, don't pay any taxes. Mm-hmm. So I'm all for us supporting you. Or not you, but <laughs> I'm all for supporting churches or different tax-free sort of bases. But guess what? We need that tax status back because we want our money back. That's our money. That's not your money. You didn't pay into it. Um, maybe if you count employee or real taxes. But yeah, you're right. It didn't. It didn't. You know, the chill trickle down economics thing is BS. We saw that. Uh, sold during Reagan. We also saw that during the beginning of the Trump administration with Paul Ryan and what they did with that. With that huge. Uh, tax bill they gave to the rich that was quite extraordinary yeah no i agree i agree with that yeah you know i just want to to add that in europe some countries actually made um uh, government help in this crisis contingent on paying taxes in the jurisdiction so that's i think a little bit of a penalty for using tax avoidance strategies in panama stories for you know then coming back and say bail us out in the crisis and and i think that's the right thing to do frankly yeah it's 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 going to be interesting because I I was in Las Vegas during the uh, 2008 crisis. Man, I watched that whole baby burn down. Um, in, on my street, there were one out of four homes were filled with uh, an occupant because they you know just been building crazy. So, uh, but people just left their homes. We you know every night you turn on the news and you'd see a you'd see a um, squatter who burned down a house because they're you know they didn't have electricity so they're 
they're lighting fires in the house. Um, and uh, one out of four homes, and I would go out on my street. Uh, one of my one out of four homes on my street were empty, or no, one out of four homes on my street were full. <laughs> so the other three were empty. Um, and you would hear what would sound like crickets. People would come and they'd be like, yeah, there's a lot of crickets up here. And I'm like, no, that's the fire alarms. They're going off because no one's replaced the battery in all the homes that are empty. Oh, you're kidding. This is- yeah. And yeah. even after I moved out of my home uh, and went to, I had a rental and I moved to California, uh, the squatters uh, had seen all the garbage cans out front. Clearly, they had moved out. They broke into the home and, and trashed it and sold all the appliances. Um, and that was that was pretty normal. Literally, the, the police would kick them out of one home, and they already knew which empty home they were going to down the block, and they would literally take all their belongings, go down the block, and move into the next home. It was extraordinary to see. But during that uh, during that crisis you could still go to the store, you could still go to work, you could still go to the casinos, you know, everything was still kind of operating in the, I don't know what, what you call it, but that segment of the economy was still able to operate. Small business was still able to go and everything else. Now, I mean, it's, it's a crisis uh, of proportion way beyond that. Uh, and I'm seeing a lot of more people that are smaller business, medium-sized businesses, you know, maybe they have one or two franchises or restaurants they're definitely going under, especially in California. They don't, they don't know how they can survive because um, California is kind of closing up. Many states are going back to closing up. We really botched this whole thing. Um, so yeah. I'm not sure. It could, it, this could be one hell of a recovery or a Great Depression. Yeah, I mean, I you know, if I had to make a bet, it's probably more the latter than the than the former. I, I hope not, but um, you know, I think we have we have eviction crisis looming, mm-hmm. right? And in a situation where people really do not have the income to pay, and they lost their jobs, they can't go to work because of the pandemic. And um, you know, unless really Congress gets its act together and and, and helps out um, uh, in a more massive way, I think people are. You're really going to suffer very, very, very soon, and and that will be across the country. I mean, some states have done better. I think New York seems to be recovering right now. Although, you know, just looked at the numbers in Barcelona and Spain today, they're get, getting the numbers up again. So, you know, just having brought the curve down doesn't mean that it's going to stay down. Um, so, we th- this uncertainty I think will add to the problems that people face because if you don't know what the future will bear, how can you invest? How can you raise funds? How can you survive? Um, um, yeah. So I don't know. Maybe we're going to have an eat the rich guillotine, let the meat cake French Revolution moment where we're going to take all the people you wrote about in your book that have all these uh, tax cheats and we're going to eat the rich. I don't know. Um, you know, it's, the funny thing is, you know, the you know when you think about the French Revolution, I I just wrote an, an a review of Piketty's Thomas Piketty's new book on on um, capital and ideology, and he says, you know, it's all ideas that changes the world. And I then said, you know, you say in your own book that how fast after the French Revolution the inequality that existed before the French Revolution came back. Mm. So let's not fool ourselves. Just chopping off a couple of heads won't change the system, right? We have to think a little further. And it's the institutions in the end and the political will to change that will make a difference. It'll be interesting. Maybe we'll become more of a socialist society because it would seem to me that for the correction, and this is my theory, for the correction that needs to happen from the stuff you talked about in your book and everything else, we have to start taxing the rich people more. We have to pull back the the trump uh ryan 
uh, tax benefit. In fact, pull it back quite hard um, to because we've got to go where the money is, right? I mean, I, I'm not. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, we definitely have to do this. We need some. We need more tax income as well. We have to create more um, equality and and tax yeah. taxing is both for revenue, but it's also for for levying sort of the the inequalities that we have. I mean, the good news is that everybody's going to do this in this world right now, right? I mean, so you no longer have the argument, oh, we just go then to England or we go somewhere else. Well, they're all in the same mess. So in the sense, <laughs> I think all countries will have to change their playbook um, a little bit. And that means that we probably will get a bit more of control over capital, which has otherwise become quite footloose, as I, I explained in the book as well, right? We have not only um, sort of opened the, the borders, but we also have created legal institutions for capital to allow to, to, to pick and choose, basically, where they go and pick and choose the laws that they wish to be governed by. It's definite income inequality. The, the, the biggest saddest part of all this was in the 2008 economy, watching a lot of people who are middle-aged, a lot of people who are retirement or retired uh, just get wrecked and have their retirement destroyed. And uh, for a lot of people, their, their retirement assets were in their home uh, equity. And that was wiped out in 2008. I mean, I knew people that, that they pretty much had their retirement boxed up. They were about ready to retire, and boom, that thing just took everything. And um, I'll never forget, there was, I would go into Costco, and there'd be these little old ladies working in Costco that were clearly beyond a working age, and, 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 and definitely age wasn't doing well for them. And I, I would sit and look at them and be like, oh, my gosh, I, I wonder if she lost everything in the 2008 uh, crisis, and she's being forced to work for minimum wage. And it was just, it was awful. And you'd see that all through Las Vegas at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, here we are you know, 10 years later, uh, and we're going to go through another crisis. It's going to wipe another, um, you know, 401ks and, and God is what, and retirement systems. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like a double smack uh, to people that, you know, I, I don't even know how I'm going to retire, but I've always planned like Warren Buffett working seven years after I retire. I hope I can physically, but, uh, or mentally, <laughs> uh, but still, I mean, the, the amount of wealth uh, destruction for the middle class, the lower class has been epic and will be epic from this. Right. But also, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. And we, and I'm, I'm, you know, myself in that age where I think about my retirement, but I'm also thinking a lot about the next generation, right? My students mm-hmm. um, uh, and, uh, and, and, and they're, you know, they're also, you know, spend a lot of money for the education. It's not clear that they're going to get the jobs. Um, you know, this year is still okay, but you know, what's going to happen next year? Nobody really knows. They had, um, you know, double whammies. They have basically came into college education during the years when we just got out of the last crisis and now they got this big whammy again and so for them just building building their future is 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 you know a big question mark right now as well and um and i think a lot of them are really seeing uh, facing a lot of stress in that regard as well it's very difficult to reassure them because we all don't know what's going to happen right it's um it's a difficult time yeah i mean we i i've told people <laughs> we're all going to need some mental health help after this we should have some national mental health uh you know, PTSD sort of uh, thing once we all gather this because we're, I mean, it's already hard enough to be living in your home. You know, we uh, we had a discussion a couple of days ago with uh, the author of Power Moves, uh, Lauren uh, McGoodwin, and she she had written her book talking about how she was one of the millennials who came out of, of, uh, 
uh, during the 2008 crisis. She came out, you know, she paid for education, you know, did all the right things, came out and like no jobs and, you know, ends up living with her mom and she has to recreate her whole thing. And like you mentioned that this newest generation is going to go through the same thing. And, um, um, do you think, do you see with your students, maybe I know millennials really picked up to kind of more of a socialist sort of thinking system. Do you think they'll move us more in that direction where we become a, a society that's more socialist? Well, I think there is more interest in alternative, alternative ways, different ways of doing things, right? So I teach corporations and typically we only talk about, you know, publicly traded big corporations and the legal disputes around them. And I have more and more students who want to know more about public benefit corporations, about cooperatives, about other forms of business organizations. So, so I think that I think it's very productive because, you know, although the corporation has dominated the economy for such a long time, there are different ways of organizing businesses. And maybe not everyone will produce as much you know returns just in financial terms but they could provide jobs and they could create income for for uh, people so at least knowing about them and thinking about them and that i see amongst my students right i mean we're columbia law school lots of our students go and work in the big firms downtown of course right but we also have lots of students who at least want to explore um, alternatives and, and and think about what else is out there I think I think uh, I know governments around the world, like Canada and stuff, are providing a monthly stipend stipend for uh, for you know lower income, middle income families. Uh, I think we may end up having to do a little bit of that. I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see. Uh, there's kind of a there's talk of what they're going to do right now, but I think the Republican Party, which controls the Senate, is going to maybe punt to the November election because they really don't want to spend the money. Um, and that'll be interesting to see from a, a politics aspect if they just uh, do a little bit, you know, just to get them through the election to see if they stay in power or uh, if they figure out a way to make a money grab like they did with the Paul Ryan thing. Um, it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. But what I'm getting to is that these 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 uh, monthly payments that we're making to people, and I'm not saying they're a bad thing, uh, but like you know the additional interest uh, six hundred dollars in in uh, unemployment benefit people are getting. I wonder if that will contribute more to a socialist society that believes that the government should should um, provide more. I don't know. It's kind of an interesting thing. I think. But I think there are also many different ways of doing that, right? You don't, you can say you can give handouts. There's also good arguments out there that say, well, let's create a government employment option. People mm. want to work, you know, not yeah. all people are shirkers. And that's, I think I find this always disturbing in the arguments that I hear a lot from the, from the Republican party as if people would just really not, not go to work anymore just because they have a little bit more cash right now at home. People do like to go out and, and contribute to society. I think most, most actually do it. And I think what people need is jobs and what people need yeah. is income. They don't need, need more debt. They really need um, a, pers- a perspective for their own lives to, to, to generate the income. And if the private sector cannot provide it because of circumstances, whether it's a major economic catastrophe or a pandemic right now, a combination of both, the government is the only one that can step in. And I think uh, we have to think how to structure this in such a way that it's um, commensurate with the values that we have, you know, that private autonomy is something that people, especially in this country, cherish a lot. And I think we can find ways of making this work together. So, you know, I, I started I started studying socialism when I started going in, into academia. I studied, um, you know, uh, Soviet law and Chinese law back, you know, way back then. And uh, I spent a lot of time in Russia. And it's not a system that anybody wants to aspire to, <laughs> that type of socialism. I mean, really yeah. not. 
But there are different ways of doing things. And there, I think we can be much more creative. We can even go beyond the social democratic model of, of, of um, continental Europe. You know, I'm from Germany, so I, I cherish uh, quite a few of these things. I grew up with them, right? But, but I think every country has to find its own ways and, and has a lot of potential and imagination, has to harness that to find its own way to, to get out of this crisis. And this country is the richest country in the world, right? If this country can't pull it off, who, who shall? Yeah, that's kind of it's kind of scary. Um, it'll be interesting. I, I said somewhere in one of our podcasts early on with this crisis that we may have to have like a New Deal sort of system. We we had at one point two to four trillion dollars worth of infrastructure that needs to be fixed in this country, and a lot probably a lot of technology nowadays to go with it. And the government just it may have to create that. I believe it was called the New Deal under FDR. You know, we built the Hoover Dam and a lot of different things that were paid for by the government, but it put people back to work um, out of the Great Depression stuff. Anything more we should know about your book, The Code of Capital, How the Law Creates Wealth and Inequality? Well, I think I just want to add one thing because we have talked so much about the United States. Um, I'm, I'm also talking in the book about how global capital has been configured in domestic law and how important actually the law of the U.S. and of the U.K. has been in creating a, a global uh, global um, system of, of capital. That also means that when we re- look around the world, you know, um, the U.S. is really a rule maker. Many other countries are rule takers. So there's a lot of power in this country also to reconfigure things that people in this country can benefit from much more so than in other countries where they just have to take what is out there. Mm. So I think, you know, law is, is a source of power. It's a social source of power. And I think we in this country have a lot of opportunity to think about how to reconfigure it to make sure that both inside this country, but also in the rest of the world, more people have access to this in a meaningful way that is productive and, and, and more equitable than what we've done over the last several decades. Yeah. I think, I think we're going to be forced with everything that's going on. Uh, you know, coronavirus has exposed so many fissures and create, created giant fault lines from those fissures of what we kind of knew were kind of like, broken parts of our society between social and economic and everything else. Uh, but now it's created steaming fissures that, you know, sometimes probably set to explode. And, and I think we're, uh, I think we're maybe due for some more unrest before we finally figure it out, or it's going to be an ugly transition. I don't know. Yeah, no, that's, it's hard to say, but I think, you know, we're already feeling it, right? It's not, yeah. it's not a, a settled safe place right now. So people are thinking and they're acting and reacting. And uh, I hope we get some more calmer leadership that helps us get through this um, yeah. and, and, and figure it out in a, in a meaningful, well, productive, deliberative fashion rather than in a violent one that we don't. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I've espoused this much on the Chris Voss Show podcast. People really need to think two years in the future with their choices and who they're voting for and who their leaders are going to be because they're they're going to have to invert a crisis. I, I don't know how, what your feeling is, but I've been telling people we're still in the honeymoon phase of this crisis. We haven't seen the evictions like you alluded to earlier. We haven't seen the giant bank. We've seen you know bankruptcies coming, but it hasn't gotten quite down to the personal level yet. Uh, but we, we were that whole str- train that we had running in 2008 of just mass destruction uh, probably won't come till after the first of the year. I agree with that. I agree with yeah. that. 
Yeah. And so it's really important at a policy level, you know, who people vote for and what they put in. And hopefully we put in some confident people um, because this crisis is, I'm, I'm optimistic. I mean, it's hard to be optimistic about this thing, but I'm optimistic that uh, hopefully maybe Joe Biden can get put in. He, you know, he, he, they helped guide us through the 2009 crisis, but you never know. I mean, in times like this, all bets are off the table. And, uh, and sometimes, uh, you know, in, in times like this, you see the rise of socialism. Like if you look at Venezuela, and I forget the uh, gentleman who started it all. It was back in the 90s, I think it was. Chavez. Um, yeah, Chavez. And, and he rose and helped destroy that country out of, you know, issues kind of like we're having right now. Um, you know, he's like, oh, I'll fix it all, you know, and then just made it worse and then compounded it, compounded it. Um, and uh, the, I think the only difference we have is, is coronavirus is the big equalizer. Like it doesn't care how rich you are. It doesn't care what you look like, what your class is. It doesn't care. It's yeah. just going for you. Yeah, no, um, on a health basis, for sure. No, but I think, you know, we also have a lot other, of other things in this country. I mean, lots of people are really, you know, well-educated. They're politically savvy. They're economically savvy. We have fantastic lawyers. Um, we have people with a lot of imagination. And I think there are really lots of variations on the theme. Um, we probably are going to shift a little bit more towards the government doing more. But how it does that and who will benefit from that is all something that we should deliberate and, and think about creatively. Um, and I don't think Venezuela or the Soviet Union or so are a good comparators <laughs> for that. <laughs> I hope not. Uh, and hopefully we come out of this. I mean, I don't know if we'll be rich when we come out of this, but uh, hopefully we come out of this with much more better social, uh, social equality and financial equality, like what you talk about in your book, where maybe everyone can either take advantage of these or maybe a flat tax would, you know, eliminate a lot of this game gamesmanship that's been going on. Uh, so give us your dot coms uh, where people can look you up on the interwebs. So you can look me up at Columbia Law School, another faculty um, webpage. You can find me on Twitter at Katarina Pistor. I'm on LinkedIn under my full name, Katarina Pistor. You can find my book at Princeton. You can find it at Amazon, other um, major outlets. Um, it's the uh, Code of Capital, How the Law Creates Wealth and Inequality. Thanks for having me today. Thank you for coming on. And I encourage people to read these books. I know a lot of people are like, I don't like math and I don't like finance and stuff. You've got to understand how this world is working and sometimes how people have an advantage. And maybe you're one of those people who can be like, I'm going to get her book so I can figure out how to get some great tax haven stuff going on. But it's important that we educate ourselves on what's going on in life, how it's being used, and we can have a discussion as to whether or not it's appropriate, whether or not there's equity or uh, equality in it, um, and whether or not certain people have advantages that other people don't, whether we should close the loopholes or whether we should leave them open. So thank you for being on the show. And uh, everyone check it out. Princeton University Press, The Code of Capital, How the Law Creates Wealth and Inequality. I encourage everyone to read it. Uh, thanks to Monix for tuning in. Be sure to give us a like, subscribe to us on YouTube if you can. Go refer the show. Give it five stars if you like it on iTunes. Uh, give us a good referral write a nice thing about us um you can tell them how incredibly good looking i am uh almost better than brad pitt and that's why you love the show or something like that uh, not that i'm putting words in your mouth but you know if you want to say that it's fine with me <laughs> thanks for tuning in guys we'll see you next time and be safe thank you so much take care